Welcome to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez, the podcast that offers practical advice and tips on how to run and grow your small business. The How of Business helps aspiring entrepreneurs and small business owners achieve their definition of success and overcome challenges that get in their way. This podcast series focuses on the everyday common business issues, challenges, and opportunities that face the small business owner. So here now are your hosts of The How of Business, David and Henry. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez with you today and my special guest, Vance. Vance Morris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Henry. I look forward to it. Absolutely. Vance, uh, let me give you a bit of background on Vance, and I'm extremely excited about having him here. You'll understand why in a moment. Vance spent 10 years working at Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida, my personal favorite place in the world. Uh, He started his career at Disney on the opening team of the Yacht and Beach Club Resorts and then progressed through the management ranks as the nightclub manager at Pleasure Island. That doesn't exist anymore, but it was a great fun nightclub area in downtown Disney, or what is now part of downtown Disney. Uh, Then he was a service trainer aboard the Empress Lily, which is a restaurant on a boat there at the lake, and on the revitalization team of the Contemporary Resort in the mid-1990s. It was during that project that he uh, achieved his crowning achievement at Disney, as he says, which was designing, opening, and operating Chef Mickey's, which is Disney's flagship character dining experience. And it is magical. I've taken my daughter there back when she was younger. We had a great experience there, so thank you. And then after leaving Disney, and yes, some people do leave Disney, he utilized his skills to rescue or improve many of America's companies' government agencies. His clients included Legal Seafoods, Tyson, NASA, Rainforest Cafe, Compass Group, the executive office of the president of the United States, the Smithsonian, and the Kennedy Center for Performing Arts, just to name a few. Uh, he tired of corporate life, though, and we're going to get into that. And Vance, that's when Vance opened his own bricks-and-mortar business in 2007. And after meteoric growth in his service business, other entrepreneurs began to seek him out for advice and counsel. Uh, and this spawned his next business, which we will also chat about, called Deliver Service Now Institute, and they offer consulting and coaching for companies on how to create and implement Disney-style service and then apply direct response marketing to profit from it. Vance is also the author of several books and an acclaimed speaker, and I am terribly excited and thankful to have you on the show, Vance. Please add anything you wish to that, and we'll get started here. That was a pretty good introduction. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I, th- I think one of the big things that often gets left out is, uh, you know, my experience with my family. Um, you know, I have, uh, I-, I managed to do all that with uh, four children uh, running throughout the house, ages uh, eight to uh, 16. So um, not only is it a, a busy work life, but it's also a busy family life. And, you know, achieving that balance, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, miss the opportunity to to really have a balanced life. Um, you know, and they design their business around, uh, or they design their life around their business as opposed to designing their, uh, you know, their business around their life. And uh, I learned that lesson very early on um, that, uh, you know, what I was going to do was going to be able to afford me the time um, and the resources to spend with my family. So um, if that's a a lesson anybody can learn uh, before they get into it, um, or, you know, maybe think about it now, uh, definitely something to think about for you. Yeah, no, definitely. Thanks for adding that. That's a great point that that's that's such a challenge for small business owners or even folks in the corporate world, obviously, maybe even more so. Absolutely. So as I kind of hinted at, and for those who have been listening to my podcast for a while, know that I'm a huge Disney fan. I grew up in South Florida. And so we started going right off the bat when it opened in 71, 72. And I lost count. This is not an exaggeration. Lost count of being at the Magic Kingdom at about 66-0. So went there all throughout my life. It was the place of memories for me and my family. Uh, and so it, it has a lot of a special meaning to me. And it has always been the influence behind how I try to operate my businesses from a customer service perspective. Now, what initially got you to Disney? How did you end up there to begin with? Well, I was working uh, out, out of college. I uh, had a, a great restaurant job. 
but a, a buddy of mine went down and he was actually a recruiter for Disney, worked in their casting center, which is their employment center, um, and kept bugging me to come down. Now, remind you, I, I grew up in the Northeast, uh, had never lived in the, the sun and the fun, so to speak, and uh, but he kept bugging me to come down there. So I did. I was, uh, I was lucky to have him uh, where he was and then ended up working with a couple of great uh, new bosses who they were also new to Disney uh, when we opened up the Yacht and Beach Club Resort. So it was, it, it was a, it was a quick transition down there, and I, I can't believe that uh, I actually had to ask, have to ask him, or he had to ask me, uh, you know, more than two or three times to make the jump down there. I probably should have just done it on the first, uh, on the first ask, but that, that's okay. Yeah, well, it was a big, it was a big shift, right? I mean, you were early in life, and that was a big move at the time. It's, it might have seemed risky, I suspect, at the time as well. It could have been, it could have been, but yeah. um, no, I, I gave up a, a great management job to uh, really just start all over again uh, in Orlando, and uh, best decision of my life. Wonderful, wonderful. So, where I want to start as far as getting into the questions here, because I could talk forever about Disney, but we have limited time. I, I want to start where we usually start with with folks with your background is in that transition. You had this tremendous opportunity at Disney, uh, did really well there, highly rewarded, very um, rewarding overall. But you still wanted to make this and needed to make this transition to being your own boss. And as you said, you're tired of corporate life. Take us back to that and share a little bit about what you think drove that to actually make the move to being your own boss. Sure. Well, after I left Disney, I did have a couple of other corporate-type uh, jobs uh, in the food service and hotel industry, working for retirement communities, independent restaurants, and uh, contract food service, where I, where I had a lot of the government agencies um, as my clients. Uh, the uh, w What I found is that anytime I made more of an entrepreneurial decision in those in those positions um, they were generally rewarded very well financially or monetarily uh, however the bosses above me you know didn't like me thinking so much out of the box and I think I I you know at Disney I had a certain amount of latitude uh, to run what needed to be you know to run the operations the way they needed to be run obviously within the framework that Disney provides but I, but I realized that I, I really make I hate to say it, but I really make a lousy employee. I like to do things fast. I don't like to do things by committee. You know, I like to do things, you know, I, I, I fail fast. I think that's extremely important for entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, if you're going to fail, do it fast. Don't do it slow and drag it out and then, you know, move on to your next project. And, you know, one of the reasons that I left the Smithsonian actually uh, they kind of gave me a nudge out uh, was that I was very, uh, I took an entrepreneurial decision if you got time for a quick story if you remember oh yes uh if you remember ronald reagan's funeral uh when ronald reagan passed away uh you know he he lied in state and then they they took his his casket uh on a procession uh up constitution avenue to lie in state at the capitol and on constitution avenue in front of all the museums and in front of all the government buildings they have all of the you know the green water hot dog vendors and the uh the the three t-shirts for a dollar vendors and you know just some very undignified businesses lining the streets there. Very essential, but relatively undignified. Um, so when the, uh, when the procession was going by, they cleared the streets of all of these vendors, but the streets were still packed with people. Typically, the museums were not allowed to go out into the streets. That was the the environment of, of the of the street vendors, and you know we handled everything um, on the you know on the property of the museums. But with those folks gone, I said, "Wow, this is a great opportunity, uh, you know, to make a couple extra bucks because nobody's in the museums. Everybody's outside watching Reagan uh, pass by." So I got my team together, and we sold probably about eight thousand dollars worth of bottled water and wow. and jelly beans. If you remember, if you remember <laughs> Reagan's uh, penchant for jelly beans. Um, which, you know, I thought, you know, Reaganomics at work right there, uh, you know, it was, a, right. it was a great tribute to him. However, the uh, museum folks did not quite find that to be, shall we say, a dignified uh, thing and said, you know, uh, we like what you do, but we need to, uh, to show you the door. So that was just uh, one of the few entrepreneurial uh, ventures I took while I was in corporate America that, you know, again, while they turned out great financially, um, you know the the bosses up top uh, not always not always thrilled with it. 
Yeah, that's an insightful story. Did you, you did you always have that instinct to just act and and go with your gut feel, and not worry about asking the higher ups for permission, or did Most, you get more emboldened over time? Uh, it it grew. Uh, you know, obviously at Disney, I was young in my career. I don't want to say I was brash, but um, you know, certainly, you know, we did take a lot of chances. The uh, the the bosses that I work with, uh, especially at the Contemporary Resort, uh, were brought in because the resorts had really fallen. I don't want to say they fallen by the wayside, um, but they had become an ancillary um, amenity to the theme parks. They weren't destinations of their own. Um, Disney realized with you know all of the other destination resorts that were popping up around the property that they needed to make the Grand Floridian, the Contemporary, uh, the Polynesian resorts, all destinations in and of themselves. Even if you never left the resort to go to one of the parks, you could actually have a fantastic vacation at the hotel. Um, and that was one of the, the things they brought in a bunch of executives from Euro Disney to revitalize. And I worked on the uh, with a, a Euro Disney executive uh, on the revitalization of the Contemporary Resort. Um, so a lot of the rules that a lot of other places had to follow, I don't want to say they were thrown away, but they were certainly uh, tempered by the need to really do a lot of things. I mean, we had a very short period of time to, you know, to turn this battleship around and make it a destination, just like the Magic Kingdom, just like Epcot Center. Uh, we needed to make the Contemporary Resort a destination, just like, um, just like the rest. Yep. When you think back, do you did you always envision yourself being your own boss, or did it come later? Especially as you had these situations where you you hit that wall with the people above you. I think it was. It was always something that was that was swimming in the back of my mind you know after we had done the the renovation of the contemporary you know a, a couple of the uh, consultants that were there you know were kind of fishing around to see if I wanted to leave the company and come work for them and you know be more of an independent uh, consultant underneath another umbrella you know so the the thought was always there but I think uh, I wasn't really you know and, until I was unemployed I wasn't really and had to make the choice to do something I didn't really you know, I, I think I was a little bit gun shy you know to pull the trigger to actually go out and do it myself so then around 2007, you actually do start your own business, and it's completely somewhat unrelated, at least seemingly to me. Tell me about that. Sure. Well, I was since I'd come from you know a corporate background, I was looking for my own business, and I found that probably opening a franchise would be the best way for me to go about opening my own business, because they would provide the framework for which you know I could start the business. Uh, they had a lot of the the things that needed the systems were already in place. The things that worked were there. You know, they provided all of the equipment for a carpet cleaning business, uh, an oriental rug cleaning business. They provided the training. So really it was, you know, a, a package, but I chose them uh, and I had a lot of choices. I actually worked with a franchise headhunter, if you can believe there is such a thing out there. Uh, oh, sure. And they worked with me, you know, through financial acumen, risk tolerance, you know, levels of service, what I was really looking for and what I was passionate for. And they kept bringing this particular franchise up because they had a phenomenal product. I can look any of my clients in the eye and say, you know what, all of our stuff works. Um, if you allow me to use it and use it properly, all of our stuff works. Um, but, you know, it, they didn't have carpet cleaners, if you think about it. Uh, they don't have the greatest of reputations for home mm -hmm. service businesses. Uh, you know, even 2020 did an expose on the carpet cleaners. And it was not a very flattering expose, shall we say. And, yeah. you know, so, but I knew that there was no high end. The area I live in, there are a lot of, you know, millionaire homes. We have a lot of the McMansions. A lot of people have second homes, third homes, fourth homes in our area. And there was really nobody serving that niche. And I said, well, I think I can make this work with, you know, with their with their products and, and my uh, Disney experience and my service experience. I think I can make this, um, you know, a very viable business. Uh, so in 2007, we started my uh, carpet and upholstery cleaning business here on the Eastern Shore of Maryland. And I've now gotten it to a point uh, where it's almost on autopilot, putting all the systems that I learned over the years. I probably spend maybe two hours a day um, on the carpet cleaning cleaning business. The rest of it is spent in my consulting business. That's fantastic. And if you think back now, 
would you do, would you go the franchising route again as your first business venture? Um, knowing what I know now, yeah, definitely. You know, it, it's not for everyone. You know, certainly it does have its drawbacks. You have to pay into a franchising model or franchise fees, however it's set up. You know, but uh, for somebody like me who was, you know, I, I was looking for a little bit of structure in which to build a company around. So for me, that was that was great. There are a lot of folks that, you know, maybe they were a carpet cleaner or an electrician working for another company and they decide they've seen enough and they can actually go out and branch out on their own. Certainly that can happen. I think that's for a certain temperament. But also one of the things I was setting out to do was to build a business. I didn't want to just own a job. You know, I wanted to, you know, have a business that, you know, afforded me the lifestyle that I wanted for my family. Yeah. And early on, what, what do you recall as some of the challenges as you were getting started with it? Well, first and foremost, I had no idea how to market the business. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I think that and that and, and neither did the franchiser. Interesting. You know, they, they had, you know, I mean, they had some stuff that was, I call it pretty picture marketing, you know, throw up a picture of a puppy and it's supposed to sell carpet cleaning. And I found that that really, that approach didn't work. And I said, well, if, you know, showing pictures of animals and babies and things like that didn't sell it, what would? And I actually picked up a book, you know, uh, called The Ultimate Marketing Plan by Dan Kennedy. It was one of the few uh, raggedy ones left at the Barnes and Noble. And he really talked about something called direct response marketing, which most small businesses really should be following. Uh, And direct response marketing is if you run an ad, you should be able to see an immediate response from that ad. Not necessarily in, you know, ROI or return on dollars, but, you know, maybe the ad was only designed to get leads. And then it's your job to convert those leads into uh, into paying clients. But, you know, the, the premise of direct response marketing is that if you, you know, if you shell out a dollar, you should be able to see $3, $4, $5 come back and be able to directly attribute it to that ad. And I see so many small businesses out there just, you know, wasting so much money uh, advertising and marketing because they're trying to follow the big guys. Uh, You know, we don't have the budget of Coca-Cola or Walmart or Disney. And, you know, so we have a very limited budget and I need to make sure that that budget is doing everything possible to bring in revenue for me. Yeah, and we're going to get a little bit more into that topic, but while it's fresh here, is part of the confusion you think that small business owners make is they confuse brand marketing with direct response marketing? Is that what you see sometimes? Like when you get something at home and you say, oh my gosh, this is all wrong. Yep. What What is it that's wrong? Um, is that you are trying to mimic the big guys and you know they have the money and the resources to to run a brand ad. Um, yeah. And also, they're, they're all, they also have ulterior motives for those ads. Uh, think about Super Bowl ads. You know, most of those ads are not designed to actually sell a product. They're designed to win an award or become the number one Super Bowl ad. You know, the, the Coca-Cola ad, if you remember with, uh, I think it was Mean Joe Green, uh, when he gave the little boy his, um, his jersey. His jersey, yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, that actually did not sell, and this was back, you know, when Coke was first starting to advertise. Uh, on television, that ad actually did not sell any Coca-Cola and was actually pulled. Um, So even in the early stages, you know, some of the big guys were, you know, were cognizant that, you know, even though it was a great award-winning ad, it didn't actually sell any product. They they actually, worldwide sales of Coca-Cola during that ad uh, went down about 3%, which, um, you know, I I can't afford that. So um, that's why I run with the direct response marketing and really show, you can do brand building. Don't, you know, you need to have a brand for yourself, but the brand building should really be a byproduct of your advertising and your marketing, not, um, you know, not the lead, not the lead piece that's going out there. Right. Great insight. All right. Let's segue into customer service. If, If we go back to your first business, the one you still have, but early on was, was customer service a focus from the start, did you bring that from your experience from Disney and thought that's how I'm going to differentiate? Just share with me a little bit more about that early on. Oh, first and foremost, uh, you know, yes, definitely. You know, had my own carpets cleaned. Um, you know, I had seen, and we're you know right there in with electricians, plumbers, appliance repair people. You know, anybody that's got to do work in your house. Um, and I found that most of them did not treat my home with respect, which you know, which was just 
drove me nuts. You know, I mean, I take right. my shoes off. The least you can do is take your muddy, you know, muddy work boots off before you come into my house. That was the driving force behind the business was this is going to be a completely new level. And it was a hard for the first year and a half, two years, you know, until people got to know who we were and that I started to get repeat clientele and getting repeat clientele based on the service that I was providing, you know, People are with me for life now. I've had, you know, clients since the first day I opened. I, I still have more than half of my clients from the day I opened still clean with me at least every 18 months right now. So I know that in instilling that level of service, not only, you know, when I was working on the truck, but, you know, my employees, you know, getting them trained, knowing that, you know, the level of service that they provide is going to be a direct ref- direct reflection on their paycheck and that really uh, that really got them motivated to uh, to really provide the level of service that I would expect and and if I've got it right you, you summarize this approach to customer service as the awesome power and profitability of impeccable customer service through systematic magic so how do you define impeccable customer service well you know it's really and I and I don't know if we'll have a chance to talk about the client compass in a little bit but we'll have uh, really impeccable service is exceeding your customer's expectations. In the carpet cleaning business, that's not a difficult thing to do. It's actually pretty easy because especially for our new clients, their expectations are fairly low. You know, when I was at Disney, uh, we had to uh, continually find ways to exceed um, our customers' expectations because we did have, I mean, 80% of people that go to Disney have been there at least one time before. So that's a huge number of people. So over the course of, you know, the four years that I ran Chef Mickey's, we started to see returning returning clients, returning guests coming back to Chef Mickey's. And we had to continually find ways to improve the service, to do new things, to really wow uh, the guests so that they didn't become bored because they're used to getting new things. They're used to seeing, uh, you know, the wow effect. They're used to seeing, you know, really having their current expectations exceeded. You know, we can't just meet their expectations. We had to exceed them. And so really, you know, impeccable customer services is, is as simple as exceeding your guests' expectations. Right. And, and so in one of your books called Systematic Magic, and it talks about the seven magic keys. And, and so, yes, as you mentioned, tell me more about the client compass and how that comes into play. Sure. Well, in order to exceed your client's expectations, you need to know what they are. And so we've come up with what's called the client compass, and it has the, the needs, wants, emotions, and stereotypes out on the compass points. And so in order to figure out, um, you know, the basics of what your customer wants is, is the needs. And that's really the basic. This is the essentially just the service that you provide. So if you're a car dealer, your client's need is a new car. One step up above that is the client's wants. What do your clients want? You know, this is a deeper purpose of the need. And, you know, an example would be an Audi dealer or a BMW dealer. And the want here would be your client wants a high performance car. Uh, they want something that's going to be, um, you know, a little bit above the normal. Then you start to tap into their emotions and, you know, what do they really want to feel? What are what are their feelings? And, you know, what are their feelings with the, when, with the client experience while they're dealing with you? Uh, with a, with, if we take our Audi dealer, you know, clients are going to feel proud. They're going to feel keeping up with the Joneses. Uh, you know, they're going to be proud to show it off. Uh, one of the other emotions, it could be a negative emotion. You know, they may have a huge buyer's remorse. And then the stereotypes, you know, these are the preconceived notions uh, that your client has of your business. You know, again, going to the high-performance car uh, dealership, um, you know, they expect to see service technicians dressed a certain way. They expect a certain sales process that they're not going to get maybe at a, at a Kia or a Hyundai dealership. Uh, they expect to see, they have, a, you know, something in their mind that says that they want something uh, a little bit different. Um, so once you find out what your client's needs, wants, and emotions are, you can begin to figure out what the, the expectations are going to be, and then you can figure out how to exceed those expectations. Okay. So then as you focus on customer service, you think about those four points in the compass and make sure that you're always addressing all of those and cognizant of how people, what people's needs are, what their wants are, what their stereotypes are. So in the carpet business, the stereotype might be that, you know, that you're, they're going to get bad service. They're going to get taken. Yep. People are going to be sloppy. So you address all of those. You also attack these four things 
in the direct response marketing to an extent. Is that right? Well, certainly. You know, in the in the marketing that I do, uh, you know, one of the the headlines that I always use and usually attracts the most attention is, you know, we are the only Disney train service company on the Eastern Shore. Um, mm. You know, and at the moment, I can still say that um, because nobody, unless they've been trained by me. Um, you know, there's really nobody else that can say they've been trained by Disney um, in providing service. So that really sets the stage and that sets the expectation that they're going to get Disney level service from a carpet cleaning company. Um, and that really sets, um, you know, sets the bar very high for my employees, uh, sets the bar obviously very high for myself, but uh, one that, um, you know, will differentiate because you know, people, you know, people will pay for great service um, and they will pay more for great service than they will for just adequate or bare bones service. You know, this is why we have, you know, uh, a Nordstrom's and a Walmart. You know, you'll, you're going to get one experience at Walmart. You're going to get one experience at Nordstrom's and you're going to pay vastly different prices. Same thing with the carpet cleaning business. Uh, you know, you can certainly find a, you know, an El Cheapo brush the dirt off the top of the carpet, you know, coupon clipping carpet cleaner out there, you know, who will do things for, you know, you know, for prices that I won't even touch, you know, or you can get a Disney style, Disney level service of, of cleaning and get a Disney, Disney style experience, you know, with our business and the, the unwritten tenant there is that you're probably going to pay more and that filters out the cheapos. So if they just want, you know, a bare bones, dirt cheap carpet cleaning, just the way I write the ads, knowing their needs and wants and emotions, you know, the way I construct the ad will actually filter out the tire kickers and the cheapos um, and they won't even call. Uh, so, right. so really, you know, the, you know, the ads are working, you know, they're, they're doing a lot of the heavy lifting and doing a lot of the work. So I don't get a lot of tire kicker phone calls, which wastes, you know, my time or my CSR's time uh, in answering the phone. The people that are calling actually want to just book the job. Yeah, you're not you're not even attracting that customer who's just looking or shopping on exactly. price exclusively. Yeah, so obviously we're talking about these seven magic keys to Disneyfying your business from the book Systematic Magic. I wish we had time to talk about all seven, but the, the three, like three or four that stood out. One we've talked about the client compass. The other thing you focus on is details and having an obsession with details. Chat with us about that if you would please. Sure. Um, well, you know, being in a cleaning business. Uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, we are in a very detailed business. The the food service arena that I was in is a very detailed business. And obviously, Disney, you know, is really a detailed business. Um, and they do a lot of things that, you know, the customers details, you know, are not always going to be noticed by the customers. And people always ask, well, why do it? Well, because it's for the 10%, the 20% of people that do get it. You know, that's why Disney, if you go to the Be Our Guest restaurant um, at, at the Magic King, all the little uh, cornices that are up in the corners of the, uh, of the restaurant, they could have just done a plain, you know, wooden cornice and, and had nothing, you know, really uh, exciting up there. But what they've done is they've actually got little hand-carved uh, beasts' heads um, as the cornices and all of the decorative uh, pieces up in the ceiling. Now, 80% of people are not going to look up, but for the 20 of the percent that do look up, there's something to wow them and there's another level of detail there. And those level of details carries through th not only through the physical plant and how things are designed, but also carries through to the service. So, you know, you, you can build a great building and have it full of architectural details, um, but then you actually have to get down and do the service. And, you know, we've got to be able to, you know, not, not only do that, we also need to promote, you know, that we do have these details. You know, I do a newsletter uh, every month to my clients, and I let them know what we're doing. Uh, Disney has a newsletter. It's called D23. Um, if, you, if you don't get that, it's actually a pretty cool magazine. It comes out every quarter. But that's Disney's insider newsletter letting people know what they're doing. And this is how I found out about the cornices at, um, uh, at the Be Our Guest restaurant was through our, our our D23 magazine. They were educating their guests on all of the level of detail that went into the design of this restaurant. And I do that through my newsletter. I, I educate my clients on the level of detail that we go when we do our cleaning. 
Yeah, I cannot believe I did not know about that. So I've made a note of that. <laughs> I got to get on that. So yeah, I could talk about this topic forever, but there's so many key points here. And the last one you touched on, as I had read through the book, I made a sp- particular note of, because I think that's something that I've missed, is that you do have to promote some of those little details. You can't just assume that everybody will see it. And it's that it's that 10% that's an important audience that takes that forward and carries that message. Yep. So that was a huge takeaway. But but also you talk about, and this is where I buy into it completely, is that those little details set the tone for your entire environment. It says this is the standard that we set. It doesn't matter that people see it or not, whether it's back of the house or front of the house or whether the customer sees it or not. These are the things we do because that's because it's congruent with how we operate. And that's kind of what I take from that. Definitely. Oh yeah, definitely. You know, and I think that, you know, you know, setting the stage, you know, I don't have the luxury, you know, especially in the carpet cleaning business of literally setting a stage for people to come into a storefront or a showroom or anything like that, or an office. So we actually have to set the stage uh, for our service and for those details when we get to, uh, when we get to the home and, you know, my guys all carry an extra set of an extra uniform set with them in case they get dirty on the uh, you know the job previous to them so when they are going to their next job you know they're crisp and and pressed and and look presentable you know we carry you know the one way the only way we can do our job is to get into the home so this is where we actually set the stage uh, for the expectation of the level of service that we're going to provide to them is when we knock on the door uh, we don't ring the bell we knock because friends knock uh, salespeople ring the bell we put down a very special mat uh, that we wipe our feet on. It's a you know logoed uh, mat for my business. We have a special little gift that might we have a housewarming gift that we bring to each of our clients. Um, you know if you're going to go to a friend's house for a party or something, you, you don't go empty-handed. You always have a bottle of wine or hors d'oeuvres or something. So my guys all bring a little gift uh, for the homeowner. So this you know whether we clean for them or not, uh, they're going to get this gift. And we say you know here you know Mrs. Smith, this is a gift from you know from the boss. We just want to say thank you for letting us into your home. And it's nothing great. It's just a little bottle of spot remover, a little bag of cookies and a note from me, um, you know, dressed up in a nice little box. But that sets the stage for something else. You know, when I, as I mentioned before, you know, the service is also generates a significant amount of profits and revenue. And, you know, with this gift, I start something called reciprocity. Um, and people are going to feel compelled to actually want to give back to me or, you know, during our sales process when we're in the home. They, you know, they're going to feel like, well, they gave something to me. I need to give something back. And we've tested this when we've we've used the gift and we've not used the gift. And actually our sales in the home are off about 17% uh, when we don't use the gift. So the gift cost me $4. In order to get a 17% revenue bump, I'll spend that $4, you know, every day. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the hard work there is doing that consistently, setting that tone from the top, not doing it sometimes, not others. You know, this crew does it better than others. It's that consistency. That's that's where the hard work is, right? Ben? It is. And it's setting up the systems to allow that. You know, again, I don't have an office where I can keep an eye on my employees, you know, the entire shift that they're there. They're spread out, you know, 180 miles, you know, in either direction out doing, you know, work in people's homes. So, you know, you've got to have the systems in place, one, to train them and get them to that level of service. But two, you also have to have the system in place um, in order to get feedback from the clients to make sure this stuff is actually happening. And, you know, being ruthless in your management, you know, not mean and vindictive, but ruthless in that, um, you know, you just, there are certain things that, you know, you don't waver on. Um, You know, they, they, my guys know that there are the service standards, you know, they are always followed because they've been shown not only, you know, to be profitable, uh, but to generate referrals, to generate goodwill. And heck, it's a heck of a lot nicer to be in a, in a comfortable, nice position in someone's home than having somebody be suspicious of you while you're, while you're working and hovering over your shoulder the whole time. Yeah, great point. So process is another one of those seven magic keys. And I would love it if you would share the lost car story from Disney. Oh, sure. You know, if you think about, uh, you know, if you've been to the Magic Kingdom, uh, you know that the parking lot is a veritable ocean of rental cars that all look the same. You know, you come in early in the morning, seven o'clock, you park. Now, all of Disney's parking lots are named after their characters. So there's, you know, Goofy 26 and Donald 13 and, 
etc. And those are the, the sections of the parking lot are, are numbered that way. Guests that are in the parks, you know, you got to think about they're going to be fairly malnourished by the time they come out. They're exhausted, probably sunburnt, um, and probably dehydrated. And when they get out um, at nine o'clock at night, 12 hours later, um, they're not going to probably remember, unless they wrote it down, they're, they're going to have a hard time remembering where they parked their car. And even if they can remember a, a vague area, their car is going to look like, you know, 30 other cars right around it because it's a rental and all rentals in Central Florida essentially look the same. So cast members there, you know, recognized that, you know, guests were, they were spending an inordinate amount of time with guests trying to find their cars, especially ones that didn't even know what parking section they were in. So the hourly cast members actually came up with the idea um, to start writing down the parking lot that they were in at a particular time in the morning. So if you were coming in at eight o'clock in the morning, they knew that they were parking Goofy 23. So this way, when a guest came out 12 hours later and they're like, gosh, I don't remember where I parked. They can actually go up to the parking attendants and say, well, and give them, well, we were here about eight o'clock this morning. You know, okay, well, if we know you were here about eight o'clock this morning, we were parking Goofy 23 at eight o'clock this morning. So we can at least narrow it down to, you know, 50 or 75 cars. And then then they can, which cut significant amount of time that the parking attendants had to spend with the guests so that they could, you know, make sure that other guests were being taken care of. And then they were able to narrow down, you know, the row in which the the car was parked um, and really found it a heck of a lot better. So this was not a management, you know, solution to a problem. This was an hourly employees, you know, came up with how they were going to find lost cars, you know, in the Disney parking lots. So Vance, one of the quotes in your book that I have to agree with was a Tom Peters quote that says, quote, in general, service in America stinks. And again, I agree with that. So tell me why you think that is. Sure. Well, you know, I think that, you know, a lot of companies have take their foot off the gas or stop looking. Once they've got something set up, uh, they will stay they just let it run, and I call it an insidious decline um, in customer service, where it's almost imperceptible little declines in service where things become acceptable. Like you know, if you go to the ice cream store and you're you're in line and you get a uh, you know an ice cream cone, and you know so, sometimes they ask you for sprinkles, sometimes they don't, when they probably should ask you for sprinkles every single time. You know that would be you know part of the insidious decline of customer service. You know one of the things that uh, you know if you got time for a quick story. I am, I am not by any stretch of the imagination a, uh, a home improvement kind of guy. I, I'm not uh, not very handy. My wife does not let me use a hammer in the house. But but I do get to use the shovel occasionally in the backyard. Right. So I had to go to right. a home, one of the big box uh, home improvement stores uh, to get some items for my day to get started. And I noticed that when I got there, uh, you know, there was a manager leaning up against a pole, or at least that's what his name tag said. And, you know, there was one cashier open. It was early and there weren't too many people in line. So I didn't mind the wait. There was like three guys ahead of me. But what I did notice was that the the cashier was not saying anything to any of the people in front of me. No good morning. No, did you find everything okay? Really didn't even ask how they were going to pay. Just kind of put out put out her hand, assuming that either a credit card or cash was going to magically appear. So she had these wordless transactions uh, with with these guys in front of me. And you know, if we've all played the game where you sit around for a minute and nobody says anything, and you know, you know how awkward and uncomfortable that can be. Uh, so you know, I said. I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to make her be the one that, you know, greets me and says something to me. So, we, you know, I get up. It's my turn in line. And, of course, she says nothing to me. The manager is there watching the whole transaction. And I, I swore I wasn't going to say anything, and I didn't. We were there for two and a half minutes. Wow. Two and a half minutes. Two humans, you know, side by side. Um, and nothing was being said to, you know, by either one of us, now, me on purpose, her probably on purpose as well. But, um, you know, really, and the manager could have intervened at any time and done a, you know, a quick little coaching saying, you know, hey, Sally, are you, you having a rough day? You know, or hey, you know, here at this store, we, we greet our customers with a good morning. You know, I would have taken 30 seconds of letting him to take his employee aside for a quick little coaching customer service than to have to endure two and a half minutes of, of painful sign. Silence. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's, and so that's obviously the culture of that particular location, let's yep. say, that nobody cares. It's yep. just there's no one throughout the ranks that cares. And so that's a, that's permissible. 
and it's it's just infuriating. As you can tell in the tone of my voice, we both get excited about this because it's just there's no need for it. And it really you can execute on this even in the smallest of businesses because I've done it and you've done it. You can do this right and, oh, and be proud of the service that you offer. Oh, certainly. I mean, I you know I don't have a very big you know carpet cleaning business. Um, you know I've got three guys, three crews out on the road. But you know, but I ensure on a daily basis through either phone calls or comment card, uh, through you know customer surveys that we are delivering what I expect to be delivered. Yeah. And so much of it then is about employee training, how you hire, how you train people. I know you talk a lot about that. A lot of companies will just focus on what you can't do. And and here are the 30 ways you can be fired, I think is the way you put it. So give me a little bit more about that and how you look at on-ramping, onboarding an employee. Sure. You know, I, I think, you know, I mean, Disney does it right. I mean, in one of the few companies, uh, they, they actually will spend a day and a half with you or with their new cast members going over the traditions. It's actually called Traditions is the name of the training program. You know, going through the mores, the history, and the traditions of the Disney company and everything that Disney is about, their service standards, their level of service. Um, you know, they le- you learn the Disney point, uh, which is not with one finger, but with at least two, and if not, gesture with your whole hand. Uh, you'll never see a Disney employee pointing with uh, just an index finger um, or, you know, thumb over shoulder, anything like that. And they spend that time before they hit, you know, the employee manual. And the employee manual, so many companies start their employee new employee orientation or their onboarding process with the employee manual. And that thing is, yes, you need it for, for legal purposes and for HR guidelines, you, you certainly need it. Um, and there is a time and a place to go over it, but I think the time and the place is after you've set the tone about what kind of company um, you're working for. And you know, in my onboarding process, you know, we spend the time uh, going through, you know, what Mike, how I built the company, uh, what our service standards are. Again, you know, going back to how we approach a home, uh, you know, how we use the gift and why we use the gift. You know, to uh, to introduce people to our business. You know, we make a big production of wiping our feet on the special mat. You you know, I, I tell them, be theatrical about it. Don't, don't be timid when you wipe your feet. Be theatrical. Get people to notice that that's what you're, you know, that you're going to be treating their home with respect. And I, and I really think that those kinds of things, you know, are going to carry my business a lot farther than, you know, my social media policy or, you know, any of my harassment policies or anything like that. Yes, you need those things, but there's a time and a place to go over those. And when you're starting out at the with a company, you know, you got to start off on the positive, um, but you also have to start off on what the company is all about um, and see if you're going to be even, you know, right for that company. Right, right. Fantastic insight. Thank you. So let's segue into... We touched on it earlier, but uh, direct response marketing to grow your business. I know you work with clients as well to help them with that. And we touched on kind of what that means. But how do you work with clients and helping them in that area? Well, I, I, I get to, one, realize that uh, brand building um, is a byproduct of advertising. You can't just, and, you know, so many companies are so focused on their company name. And if you look at, you know, open a newspaper or magazine, um, and I would say 99% of the ads in there um, are going to lead off with the company's name, you know, Eastern Shore Carpet Cleaner. Well, that doesn't really say anything about what, you know, what you are, uh, or what you are about. And so trying to get people to, you know, get away from, you know, the me stuff and go to the radio station with them, uh, you know, what's in it for me, um, which is what's in it for your guest, um, and really start to uh, talk about in your advertising the benefits um, and the transformation that your guests or your clients or your customers are going to have versus all of the little widgets and things that, you know, you may have. So, um, you know, I always talk about the transformation um, that a client is going to have. They're going to have a healthy home um, at the end of one of our cleanings, or they're going to have a magical experience um, at our hotel. Those are the transformations. Those are the things that you want to, you know, you go back to the client compass and you want to tug on those emotions, whether they be positive or negative, and use those to your advantage, you know, in your advertising. And I, I, I am a firm believer in the long form uh, form of advertising. You know, uh, very copy intensive. Uh, so a lot of words. I use pictures, but the pictures have to tell a story. So you know, if I'm going to use a picture of a puppy laying on a carpet, um, there's going to be a story, you know, around that. Um, you know, with uh, with copy uh, saying why why am I using a dog? And you know, this 
Mrs. Man's best friend, but maybe not your carpets. And but oh, by the way, our solutions are non-toxic, so they are safe for pets. You know, and really going above and beyond the, the just the general. You know three rooms for $99 and that's it uh, into, you know, what's important to the client. Um, Cause I, I don't want to be competing on price. Actually, I don't compete on price. You'll never find a price in any one of my ads. Interesting. So, and, and you, you, the great point, I think one of the great takeaways there is what you said at the outset, which is that it's, it's not about my brand and I can see how that happens so easily because we're so proud of the name we came up with or the logo that we've designed, yep. but that doesn't mean anything to anybody uh, until much later, perhaps when I can maybe throw up a logo and people immediately have an affiliation with it. But that's, we can't do that as small business owners. We got to drive what the benefit is for that prospective customer. Exactly. Yeah. So I know you offer workshops, masterminds, you do one-on-one consulting. Share with us some of the other details of the services that you offer. Sure. Uh, One of the big things that I do, um, and I do several of these a year, is actually I I take groups of business owners uh, down to Disney for what I call little uh, service magic boot camps. And we'll spend three days at Disney. I'll, I'll bring in some of my old Disney friends who will do some talking. Um, but the whole systematic magic process that we've been talking about um, is taught in great detail. They'll actually get a blueprint for how to implement Disney-style service in their uh, business at, uh, you know, at this boot camp. We spend time in the parks, uh, exploring the parks on how Disney uh, delivers their, their, their world-class service. And then uh, you know, we have a couple of receptions again where my my Disney friends will come and spend time answering, you know, really, you get the unvarnished truth. It's not a, a, a Disney Institute seminar, which they have phenomenal seminars at the Disney Institute. Uh, certainly would not knock them. Um, but the ones that, uh, you know, I, I deliver, you know, really are, uh, you know, I, I don't have any anybody watching over my shoulder about what I say. Um, so they can really get the hard truth about, you know, how Disney does it. It's all very positive, but you probably get more details through it that way. And then, you know, if, if that's something that, you know, really interests people, then, you know, I do one-on-one consulting, uh, you know, in people's offices, uh, you know, where we, we build, you know, with your team, we'll build a, you know, a very customer-centric, uh, you know, client experience. Okay. Excellent. And how long does, how long is the boot camp go uh, The boot camp's three days. And how often do you run those? Um, I run them, uh, I usually do about six a year. And really, I'm, I'm limited. Uh, I mean, I've been gone from Disney a lot longer than I worked there. So the my, con- <laughs> my contacts are, are slowly retiring from Disney. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of limited in, in, in the guests that I can get there. And also, I like to go off-peak time. So we don't go sure. the dead of summer or during the Food and Wine Festival. You know, we go January and February. Um, and again, you know, you know, I limit it to six. Uh, primarily for for those reasons and also I don't want to be gone for my family that long right yeah okay great um we'll chat more about that because I've been meaning to either attend the Disney Institute or this sounds even more compelling so <laughs> we'll chat more about that so let me start to wrap it up uh, question I always ask my guests is besides your own books which are great was there a recent book or a resource that you would recommend to our small business owners who are listening uh, definitely I think anything by Dan Kennedy and you can find him on Amazon. Um, the first book I would get by him is uh, the, his direct marketing book uh, for non-direct marketing businesses. Um, and it's really kind of the introduction to uh, direct response marketing. And actually, if that's the only book you buy this year, after the first chapter, you'll be able to implement things that are going to change how you market your business and actually show you um, you know, different strategies um, to adjust your marketing so that you're getting an immediate return. Uh, the other one that I absolutely loved, um, which I don't know if um, if you've read, um, is Waymish by uh, Ray Considine. It's called why, and that stands for Why Are You Making It So Hard. Um, I extend that out to why are you making it so hard to give me money? Uh, and it's really just, it's a collection of stories about businesses and how they've, you know, just thrown up service roadblocks, uh, thrown up uh, you know, impediments to doing business with them. Uh, you know, just, you know, stupid rules, non-flexible employees, um, you know, people that can't think outside the box. So, you know, between those two books, you know, definitely a, a, a good start there. 
Excellent. Yeah, I have not read that. I am familiar with Dan Kennedy's work. I know you you follow a lot of Joe Polish's yep. content as well. So that's I'm a fan of all of that. So thank you for those recommendations. Sure. Excellent. Any thoughts, uh, last piece of advice as you think our audience is either folks that are looking to start their small business or are small business owners looking to grow their business? Any last parting piece of advice? Um, I always tell people, remember whose business it is, um, it, that it is your business. You know, the, the inma- inmates don't run the asylum at um, my place. And sometimes it is like an asylum. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I don't stand for and, and the guys know, you know, what they can, what they can do and what, what they can't do. But, you know, I, I think, you know, my, the way I manage the business, you know, remembering that it is, you know, my business and my name on, on the sign out front, you know, I, I think a lot of people forget that because they want to be friends with employees, you know, they, and, and that's when that insidious decline in customer service starts is as soon as you start befriending employees, I'm not saying you can't be friendly, but you know, when you're, you know, close friends with employees, that's a, a very difficult business to be in. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. This is such a huge insight and takeaway, and I've I've learned that the hard way as well. You treat people fairly, you treat them friendly, like you said, yep. but but this is my business, and, and it's and it's my my reputation on the line, not to mention my investment on the yeah, line. Exactly. Yeah, excellent. So where can folks go online to find out more about you and your business? Sure. The best place is my website, which is deliverservicenow.com. It's deliverservicenow.com. And there's two sections on the website. One, um, when you get there, you can go to the left and uh, choose uh, some information about direct response marketing, or you can choose the option on the right and go towards uh, the Disney-style customer service information. Um, You know, there's a lot of good free resources on there as well that people can download and really start uh, implementing right away. And if you didn't get those links, we will have that on the show notes at thehowofbusiness.com. Everything that uh, Ben's referred to, the book recommendations, links to his website, all of that will be there as well. Uh, Vance, thanks so much for sharing and for being generous of your time today. Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Henry. Oh, it's, it's been our pleasure. Uh, so once again, folks, thanks for joining us for this episode of The How of Business. As I said, you find the show notes with all of the links at thehowofbusiness.com. If you're listening on iTunes, we would encourage you and thank you for subscribing to the podcast. And we look forward to having you on the next episode of The How of Business. Thank you for listening to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez. We hope you found practical ideas to help you start, manage, and grow your business. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a comment on iTunes and go by LevanteBusinessGroup.com and learn more about Levante's resources to help you with your small business. Until next time, thanks for listening and go live your dream.